Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It's uh, good to see all of you today. I want to invite you to uh, open up or turn on your Bibles to the passage that was just read, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Tony only gave me four verses, and I'm, not, I'm trying not to take that as a hint, uh, but it's what I've got. So we're gonna, we'll try to uh, make our way through in a timely way. In our text today, Paul continues uh, the theme that he began uh, last week, that we began discussing last week. There, Paul was seeking to encourage the Corinthian believers by, by reminding them that uh, in, our, in our suffering, we have an opportunity to experience in a unique way God's special care and comfort for us. And, and not only that, that as we receive that comfort and care, we, we then have the privilege to turn around and, and offer it to others, to extend that to our brothers and sisters, we, we receive the comfort and then we get the opportunity to, to pass it along, to be kind of agents and conduits of God's, God's grace. He says, God is, is doing something in your suffering, in your affliction, in your trials to, to use you uh, for his own purposes. And the text before us kind of continues with this, this theme of affliction or suffering or trials, but it, it per- turns to a slightly more, more personal angle. He wants the believers to know that for Paul, the writer of this letter, writing to the, the Corinthians, this, this talk about suffering, this talk about affliction is not a, a hypothetical thing that's kind of just way out there. He wants them to know that he himself is someone who has experienced in, in deep, meaningful, personal ways uh, the, the affliction that he's talking about. He's reporting when he talks about this, this affliction on his own experience. And it's in his experience, not only does he see the purpose of God in being able to turn around and, and, and encourage or comfort others, but he thinks that he sees a second purpose of God at work. He says, God is doing something else in our suffering. The first purpose in our trials and our, our tribulations is that we can, we can serve others. We can comfort them. We can pass on what we've received. But this, this second purpose is, is internal. It's transformative for us. It, it takes shape in our very heart, in our very character. God doesn't just want to do something through you in your afflictions. He wants to do something in you in your afflictions. He doesn't just want to help you serve other people in your trials. He wants to help you in your trials to become what he has created you to be. Now, what this this text does not do is give us a a comprehensive explanation of the, the problem of evil. Why is there any suffering at all? How is it that a good and all-powerful God could allow terrible things to happen and and questions like that? This text is, is not nearly that philosophically bent. Instead, it's grounded in reality. It's grounded in experience. It's grounded in in earthy, personal things. It's intimate. It's vulnerable. The Apostle Paul is not kind of grabbing a pipe and leaning back and just thinking about suffering. He's bearing his own soul here. And he's saying, I have seen in my own suffering what God is trying to do. 
He knows that suffering is not just a, an out there thing, but it's something that, that we, we, we bear the, the scars and the marks of. We carry these burdens. Sometimes we don't tell anybody about them. Sometimes they're hidden underneath the surface. Sometimes it's just a low kind of boil that just slowly rises and rises. And as you read the Apostle Paul's words this morning, I'm wondering, just in a, a crowd this size, how many of us are, are hearing him talking about despairing of, of life itself and thinking, yes, this guy gets it. He understands this is a man who knows how to put words to what he... He's talking about feeling a death sentence. He's talking about feeling like everybody's coming against him. And if that's you this morning, if you can resonate at all, if you've ever been able to resonate at all with this kind of suffering and affliction, I just want you to know, guys, this text is for you. It's got something for you. It doesn't answer all the questions about why whatever trials and difficulties and tribulations you've gone through. It doesn't say, here's, here's the, the point by point reason and, and easy explanation. It doesn't put a tidy bow and just say, here's the, here's the easy, easy answer here. But what he does do is he peels back the curtain just a little and he helps us to understand what God wants for us in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our affliction, in the midst of our trials. He says, don't miss the fact that when you go through these things, God is not absent from those scenarios. He's very much at work. He's very much at work in you. He wants to work in you. And friends, there, there might be some others here. But that kind of suffering seems really far off. Maybe you're someone for whom the, the brokenness of the world has, has only lightly touched or maybe not touched you very recently. Let me just beg you, if you can't, if nothing immediately comes to mind when, when the language of affliction, that's the language he uses here. It's very, it's very visceral language, isn't it? It's kind of in your face. If the language of affliction does not immediately bring stuff to your mind, do not tune out. The best times to prepare for affliction is not when you're in the middle of it. It's now. Prepare your heart now as you read through this text and, and be ready to receive what God might be doing now or perhaps might be doing in the future, not only through you towards others like we talked about last week, but, but in you for your good. The sermon this morning, I, I really only, I want to divide it into two simple sections. In verses eight and nine, I want us to see God's purpose in our affliction, a second purpose in our affliction. And in verses 10 and 11, the, the, the passage gives us two helps in our affliction. Very simple. God's purpose in our affliction, the first half, and then two helps in our affliction, the second half. So let's talk about that first half, verses 8 and 9, God's purpose in our affliction. Here's, here's the main idea I think we can walk away from this text with about what God is wanting to do in us with through our afflictions and our trials and our sufferings. God uses our, our trials or our afflictions to teach us to rely on his all-sufficient power. God uses your afflictions, friend, to teach you something. And it is not to teach you his absence or his indifference. It is to teach you to rely on his all-sufficient power in every circumstance. As I said, Paul wants the Corinthian believers to know that when he's talking about suffering, when he's talking about trial, when he's talking about affliction, he's not talking about hypotheticals. This is not theory. He knows affliction. Look at it there in verse 8. 
He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Now, we we aren't told in this passage precisely what Paul's afflictions were, what their trials were. It's possible that he's referring to the riots that broke out in the city of Ephesus when Paul spent some time in Ephesus preaching the gospel. And what do you know, as he's preaching the gospel, people are turning to Christ and they're turning away from their idols. And everybody's just amazed at what God is doing there. But you know who doesn't like this process? The idol makers. It affected their wallets, and, and they, they, they stir up this crowd, and there's this big riot. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and there's this big hubbub going on, and, and a lot of the attention is focused on, on Paul and his friends who are preaching this message of repentance towards God and away from idols. Maybe it's those riots that he's got in the back of his mind. It could be that Paul's got in mind some kind of physical ailment. It could be that he's thinking, what he, as he's hinted at in other passages of Scripture, that he's got this kind of abiding physical thing that just is nagging at him and won't go away. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure that that's, that resonates with some of you guys, that there's some kind of abiding physical trial that you're, you're wading through. And it's not like that there's this end in sight where it's like, oh, if you, I can just get to this point, then everything will be made okay. Maybe it won't. Maybe it won't, and, and maybe for Paul, he was thinking that there's this, this physical thing that he's been experiencing during his time in Asia. Maybe he's talking about more inner turmoil, kind of the existential angst, depression, and anxiety that he might be experiencing because of the relationship he's got with some of the churches, perhaps even the church at Corinth, where, as Tony talked about last night, he has, he's got a, a complicated relationship with the church at Corinth. It's, it's a little uneasy. It's, it's got fits and starts and things are good and then things are not good. And he wakes up every day and he's like, I don't know how things are going to be. And it's taking its toll maybe on his, his mental energy, his mental peace, and his, his, his ability to kind of just plod along and keep, carry on his business as usual, usual. And I'm just curious how many there are this morning that can resonate it's not a physical ailment. It's not outside oppression. It's internal. It's this struggle that you've got, this anxiousness, this, this heaviness that you carry with you. Paul doesn't specify. Undoubtedly, whoever was delivering this letter would have been able to give, him a little, give them a little bit more information, a little bit more detail about what he's talking about. But at least for the purposes of the letter, Paul did not think that the precise nature of the suffering was the point. What he did want them to get was how it was affecting him. He wanted them to understand the effect of these afflictions on him. You can see there as he continues in verse 8. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. He highlights in, in those, these two phrases, these couple phrases, three characteristics of the trial and the tribulation, the affliction that he's experiencing. He first wants them to understand that his internal resources were completely maxed out, right? He, he says this, we were utterly be burdened beyond our strength to bear it. How many of you guys have ever been in a situation where your internal kind of resources, they were just zapped, they were gone? You, you, perhaps it was a relational struggle 
where you just like, I don't, I don't know where to go next. Perhaps it was as simple as, I don't know, fixing something around the house. If you're like me, you watch a YouTube video, one or two, and then you call Michael Britt because your resources are immediately tapped out, right? I've gone beyond what I can handle internally. And Paul's trying to say, look, we'd experienced these, these afflictions and, and our own strength was completely depleted. He wants them to understand that Paul didn't have anything left in the tank. He had nothing kind of that he could dig deeper into. A lot of, a lot of sports uh, uh, coaches will, will use this language. You got to dig deep, right? You got to reach in and, and get it. These things don't mean anything, right? But we say them and everybody's like, yeah, got to dig deep. Well, Paul had dug as deep as there was to go and there was nothing else. He wanted him to understand that his own resources were completely gone. He wanted them to understand that, that he had this, this perception of fierce opposition. He doesn't specifically say that there are other people coming against him, but notice in verse 9, he says that he felt that they had received, <clears throat> received the sentence of death. <clears throat> Paul and his compatriots seemed to think that there was a hit out for them. That whatever they were doing, somebody was coming after them, and it obviously could be other people. It could be the, the devil himself who was coming after them. That, but they just had this, this sense that they were, they were victims of this kind of cruel attack. And the third characteristic we see is that all of this resulted in utter despair of life. Paul doesn't, doesn't pull any punches, does he? He tells us where this leads. He, he, his resources were depleted. There's, there seemed to be forces coming against him, and it leads him to the point where, where they despaired of life itself. Friends, do any of these sound familiar to you? Can you resonate with Paul here? He's not saying, obviously, that they were actually sentenced, but that they felt that way. This is their, their perception, their experience. This is how they perceived their situation. And guys, it was terrible. He wanted them to know this is what, was, what is going on in our time when we are, were apart from you. And I just want to take a quick little aside here and, <clears throat> and talk about how the most un, uh, unhelpful thing we could do to Paul is be like, Paul, it wasn't that bad, right? If we're ever experiencing affliction, the worst thing that somebody can tell you is, let me tell you why you shouldn't feel the way that you feel. Brothers and sisters, I just need to kind of confess something pastorally to you. It is an epidemic, I think, among Christians to look at brothers and sisters who are feeling hurt and anxiety and turmoil, and everybody's looking at them and saying, this is, this is why you shouldn't feel this way. Paul, Paul knows. Paul knows that he's, his life is not at an end here, but he's trying to help them understand kind of the, the reality of how he feels, the weight of his experience here. And it was precisely here at this, this point of feeling so desperate at the end of his rope that God wanted to meet him. You see there what he says at the end of verse 9. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. He's doing this kind of slow build, right? You, we had these experiences of, of affliction. We've, we were uh, really uh, struggling. We despaired of life itself. We felt like people were coming after us. And then I just am struck when I'm reading through this text that there is a purpose clause in here. 
There's a, there's, a, there's a here's what God is doing in this. And the thing that he wants for Paul is to make them rely not on themselves, but on God. God's purpose in your affliction, friend, is not to harm you. It is to teach you. More accurately, we could say it is to form something in you. Paul would say somewhere else, Romans chapter 5, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Affliction, trial, turmoil has a unique ability to form in us a profound faith and desperation for God. When you go through trials and afflictions, it has a unique opportunity for you to come alive to the depth to which you can trust this God. Isn't that interesting though? Isn't it an interesting thing to note that that we often associate uh, uh, suffering and affliction, trial, we often associate the problem of evil with the loss of faith rather than the strengthening of faith. Who among us doesn't know somebody who who at some point maybe walked away from their faith, not because of an intellectual concern, but because something terrible happened to them? They ran into some kind of affliction or turmoil or suffering in this life, and their response to that was to conclude that this whole thing must be fake. This God can't be real, or if he's real, he must be impotent, unable to help me in my suffering and affliction. Many people respond to experiences of affliction, suffering, persecution, difficulty with a heart that questions God's goodness and faithfulness. Paul says that's the wrong takeaway. That's the wrong thing you're you're taking away from this whole thing. Suffering isn't supposed to show us God's limitation. It's supposed to show us our limitations. Do you understand that? Paul realized in his suffering, Paul, you can't handle this. You're not God. You can't bear this. Affliction has an amazing ability to show us our insufficiency. And it's a good and necessary lesson for us to reckon with. I don't tend to think that my generation has a lot of great prophets, but one uh, uh, that we could probably count is the person who first started using the phrase, I can't even, and then stopping, right? We run into some situation and we just, we get to the end of our rope and we just throw our hands up and it's, I just, I can't, I can't even, which is not a sentence, right? It's not a full grammatical thing, unit, okay? But it does capture something, right? It captures somewhat of our our inability to really reckon with what's going on in this situation. Paul is is trying to highlight that when we find ourselves in afflictions, in sufferings, in persecutions, in difficulties, in trials, an appropriate response to that, guys, get this, an appropriate response to that is, I can't even. I, I can't handle this. I can't reckon with this. And Paul is saying, that's exactly what God wants you to walk away from this with. You can't. You can't, but God can. 
The primary purpose here is not that we just reckon with our own inadequacy. This passage is building up to this beautiful statement, you can't even, but we can rely instead on God who raises the dead. We are meant to turn away from our own limitations, our own weakness, our own end of the ropeness, and then look up at God and marvel to just stand and look at this God and be amazed that he literally never says, I can't. I can't even is not in his vocabulary. In the face of our own limitations, we are presented with God's incredible power. It is in the nature of, of children to test boundaries, isn't it? All the parents getting a hearty amen. Sometimes, maybe often, the boundaries are, are, are rules that we've placed for our children to keep them safe, right? Don't stick your, well, I'm not going to give kids ideas, right? Don't, don't, don't do that. Just, let's just leave it at that. One of my little girls likes to test boundaries in a different way. It's really just her, her exploring the world, and it's really fun because uh, we'll do, be doing something, and she'll start to kind of kind of do the one-up game. Let's say that mom's gotten home with, with groceries and I'll go out and I'll, I'll grab a thing of groceries or maybe she'll try to pick up this bag and she can't do it. So I, I pick up that bag and she responds, and this is always real good, daddy, you're so strong. And she says it with that in, uh, inflection too, you're so strong. Got a little eyes rolling and everything. And I'm like, yes, I can pick up this bag of groceries. This pasta is not better than me. But, but Jade, she wants to kind of figure out where the limit is. And so she says, Daddy, you can pick me up. And I'm like, well, yeah. You're so strong, Daddy. Oh, well, thanks. Daddy, you're stronger than Mama. Well, okay, I'm not, I'm, I'm not if you say so, uh, I'm not going to touch that one. But I'm like, okay. Daddy, if you wanted, you could pick my bike up, couldn't you? Well, yeah, I think I could pick your bike up. Daddy, if you wanted, you could pick the car up. Well, um, Daddy, if you wanted, you could pick the whole house up. And you're like, okay, at some point, we need to ratchet this back a little bit, okay? Because what she's doing is she's just upping the ante each time, and she's just imagining Daddy can do anything. And what she doesn't quite realize is that Daddy, like her, has limitations. But she's just trying to push the boundaries to figure out where those limitations are. And unfortunately, when it comes to fits of strength, she finds mine fairly quickly. And it's hurtful. But Paul is trying to invite us as God's children to test the boundaries with him, to push the limits and say, and say, see if you can find the limits of this God. See if you can find the limits of his strength and his power. When you find yourself in affliction and in sufferings, call on him and see if you can find the limits. It's not there. You cannot find the limits of this God. Affliction smacks us in the face with our own limitations, our own inability, and sends us looking for some kind of, of rescue provided for, by something outside of ourselves. And it is to our shame, it is sin inside of us that goes to so many places before we go to the God who created us. 
We, we, we go to other people and ask them to fill the void or provide the rescue, and they can't. We go to things like drugs or money or sex, and we say, please provide me with rescue from this way I'm feeling, this affliction that I'm experiencing, and they can never rescue us. We go to things like success and acceptance by other people, and we say, if only I can get them to think about me this way, then I will have the rescue from this affliction that I'm experiencing. We turn to politics and ask politics to rescue us from the ways that we're uh, uh, feeling afflicted and depressed and anxious, and none of these things can satisfy. They are all found lacking. But when we turn to God, we turn to a loving Father for whom there are no limits. And the proof he wants to present to us is an empty tomb. He wants to point us to a God who raises the dead. Imagine the worst in your trials. I'm not sure this is like a, a psychologically recommended tool, but a uh, move here, but I'm just gonna like feed your fears for a second. Go down the darkest path. What is the worst possible outcome? Now tell me, if a God who raises people from the dead is for you, is your problem too big? Is your affliction too severe? Is your suffering something unable to bear? God uses our afflictions to teach us to rely on his all-sufficient power to rescue us, to redeem us, to restore us. And the place he wants to go, the place he wants us to see that his power has no limits, Paul says, we run to the God who raises the dead. Death cannot hold him. It can't restrain him. It can't put limits on him. Death itself, the thing that none of us know how to beat, this God just overcomes it. He can handle it. And so Paul says, when we experience affliction, friends, brothers, sisters, what God is wanting you to see is that you are at your limit. You can't. And he wants you to stop trying to rely on yourself. He wants you to stop turning to other things and instead turn to the God who raises the dead. There is not a question of whether or not we can trust this God. The question is whether or not we will trust him. Will we in our affliction, in our suffering, in our trials, in our turmoils, will we grow to trust him more and more? Paul is, is trying to root and ground our, our faith in this life, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection has got to be one of the most practical doctrines for the Christian life. Friends, you will, Jesus tells us, in this life you will have suffering. It's happening, it's coming. Whether you're experiencing it now or somewhere else, you will have trouble in this life. But then he follows it up with what? Take heart. I have overcome the world. Everything that this world, sin, death, the devil, everything that they've thrown at, thrown at me, I have overcome. 
And what's being extended to us as followers of Jesus Christ is the ability to rest and trust in the God who exercises that kind of power at his will. When affliction and when trial is coming, yes, learn the, learn the lesson. You are at your wit's end and instead turn to the God who raises the dead. You will never find his wit's end. It will not come. That's, that's the lesson he wants us to see. That's his purpose in us. Now let me just show you two quick helps for us in our affliction. There, the first one is very much related to what we've already said in, verses 10, in verse 10. We see God's perfect deliverance is a great help for us in our affliction. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope and he will deliver us again. Paul is, is taking a step back and, and showing us that one of the great helps that we have in our affliction is to reflect on God's past and future deliverance. One of the great things we can do when we're in the middle of affliction is start to list the ways God has been faithful to his power to overcome. Who, who is this God that I'm supposed to be relying on right now? Well, brothers, sisters, it's the very God who parted the Red Sea and made his people walk through it, provided them with food for 40 years in the desert, brought, brought fire down from heaven, came to the earth in the form of a baby, died a death for your sins and for mine, and then resurrected from the grave to defeat that death. Reflect on his past faithfulness as presented to us in the scripture. So many of the Psalms are actually doing just that. We can, we can count the ways God has been faithful to his character and his deliverance, but you don't have to just go to the scriptures. Think about your own life, the ways that God has been faithful to you. One of the great privileges that we have as the people of God is that we get to remind each other of God's faithfulness. Don't forget the time that the Lord has delivered us from that difficult family to op, uh, uh, struggle or that difficult relational dynamic or that difficult job situation. Don't forget the, the time that the Lord was gracious to you when there was someone who is, who is oppressing you because of your faith. Don't forget God's faithfulness. He says he has delivered us from deadly peril before and he will deliver us again. Not only has he delivered us once, but he's also telling us to look to the future. Look, look to this, this future deliverance that we have, the promise not only of Jesus's resurrection, but of our resurrection. We ourselves, if we are in Christ, are promised future deliverance. Friends, he will deliver you again. I don't know what you're going through. If you are in Christ, he will deliver you. Now, what that doesn't mean is that all of a sudden your life is gonna become easy, just peachy keen. What that means is even if it brings you to death, God has overcome death in Jesus Christ. And if you are in Christ, the story's not over. You will be delivered from that death. Think about the amazing truth there. Death does not defeat you if you are in Christ. He will deliver again. And we know that because Jesus has already been raised the first fruits of many brothers. That's what he tells us in the end of 1 Corinthians 15. So we look at the, reflect on past deliverance and we can anticipate future deliverance and we can set our hope on it. It's a guaranteed thing. We can lock it in. He says here in verse 10. 
So the first help he gives us is just reflecting on God's perfect deliverance. The second thing, the second help he gives us is God's, God's prayerful people. We can call out to God's people. We bring them into this thing. He says in verse 11, you must also help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf of the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. Paul says that the Corinthians actually have a role to play here. It seems like, like his trial is not over. It's not just this thing in the path. It passed. It's something that's going on right now. But thankfully, God has given Paul an incredibly uh, a potent resource in experiencing and, and uh, enduring this affliction. You know what it is? It's the community of faith. It's the people of God that he can call out to and say, I need your prayers desperately. He requests their, their partnership through prayer. And then he anticipates that when they actually do go to the Lord in prayer, the Lord will answer and deliver them. And then everybody's going to be looking around saying, God answered their prayers. Paul's already counting on the end in mind. That's what's going on in verse 11. There are going to be lots of people who are giving thanks because you've prayed for me and God's answered those prayers. Brothers and sisters, do you believe, do you understand and believe the real impact of God's praying people? In your suffering, in your affliction, in your trial, in your oppression, do you go to God's people and say, guys, you've got a role to play here. I need your prayers. I need you to petition the Lord on my behalf because this, this is taking me to my wit's end. If you, are, if you are in some kind of affliction, do you go to those who pray? If you are the one who someone comes to, let me just ask, do, do you pray? Do you go to the Lord on their behalf, trusting and assuming that God answers your prayers on their behalf in their affliction, that he actually can and will deliver? It's an incredible resource we have in the people of God. He says this very simple thing. You guys can help me. I'm still going through everything. I need your help. And I'm confident that when you go to the Lord on my behalf, he's going to answer. He's going to answer. Paul's admission of weakness in this passage was an incredibly risky move. If you remember, if you were here last week, Tony ta taught us that Paul's got some opponents in this letter. And they're using this exact point as a, a charge against him. Paul's a, Paul's a fraud. He's a phony. He's an imposter. He's a fake. How do you know that? Because look at his weakness. Look at his suffering. Look at his affliction. And Paul turns around and he meets them head on. And rather than deny his weakness and his suffering, Paul wore it like a badge of honor. Because he knew that in our weakness, God is shaping us into a people who are not theoretically interested in God's power, but we are desperate for his power. Paul's entire ministry only mattered if God showed up. It only mattered if it wasn't dependent on Paul's excellent, excellence, his impressiveness. It only mattered if it was desperate for God to show up. And so Paul says, guilty as charged. I'm as weak as they say I am. I'm as afflicted as they've, as they've said. But you know what? That doesn't undercut any of my message. It's integral to my message. I am weak, but I do not rely on myself. I rely on God who raises the dead. This is the hope 
and the confidence of the Christian life. It is not that we are better people than others or stronger or more capable or more impressive. It is that we are desperate people. We need God to show up and provide the rescue. We need God to show up and provide the redemption. And the message of the gospel is that he has done that. He's done that for us in the person of Jesus Christ. While we were still weak, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, the sinless son of God God went to the cross on our behalf. When afflictions come, when suffering surrounds, when your trials in your life are dealing death blow after death blow, remember the God who raises the dead has set his love for you, on you in Christ. For those who are his, for those who are in Christ, our confidence is rooted, grounded, secure in him. If you're not a Christian, let me just ask, where is your hope and security in times of affliction? Where could you possibly go to find any power or rescue that is on par with the God who raises the dead? I don't believe there is one, but the good news of the gospel is that it's held out to us. If we recognize our weakness, if we recognize our sinfulness, if we recognize our brokenness, then God has held out hope for us in the person of his son. And everyone who comes to him, everyone who clings to him, everyone who calls on him will be rescued. And that does not mean all of a sudden life gets easy. It means even in the most difficult times of this life, we have a great confidence that it has not overcome our God. Rather, he has overcome even death itself. And one day in Christ, we too will be raised from the dead. No other hope, no other rescuer, no other place of safety and comfort can offer that guarantee. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you as the God who raises the dead. We praise you as the one who not only loves us and wants good for us, but has guaranteed it by doing what we could not do. God, I pray for myself, I pray for the people of Imago Day Church that when we experience suffering, when we experience persecution, especially that which comes from, from our faithfulness to you, Lord, our response would not be to turn inward, but instead we would learn the lesson of not relying on ourselves, but instead relying on you that we would cast our, our faith and our hope and our trust on you in a new and fresh way, knowing that you are able to deliver. God, may we be a people of deep faith and deep conviction that you are mighty to save, that you are able to rescue. God, may it be our firm conviction that we have nothing, nothing to fear in this life that could ultimately finally hurt us because you have secured our deliverance. God, likewise, may we be a people who labor in prayer for one another, that we intercede on others' behalf for your deliverance, not only in the future, but in this life. And may we recognize that you are active and faithful in working. God, we want to see your salvation. We want to see your rescue played out in front of our eyes. God, so we Make us a people that call on you. Make us a people that trust you. Find in us a people who do not rely on ourselves, but instead throws ourselves on your great power, confident that you save. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.